Hello and welcome to Read All About It, the podcast where people talk about their favourite and not-so-favourite books. Join me, Paul Cuddihy, as I take each guest on the literary journey of their life, from their most cherished childhood read and a book they'd recommend to anyone, to the book they couldn't be paid to read again, and much more in between. So listen, enjoy, subscribe and spread the word about the Read All About It podcast. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Read All About It podcast. And I'm delighted to be joined today by Jane O'Donnell, who is the Director of People Policy at COSLA, which is the Convention of Scottish Local Authorities. Jane grew up in Bathgate, West Lothian, where she still lives now with a partner and two daughters. And she grew up with a love of books given to her by her parents. She studied English at St Andrews University, which she admits was just because she loved books so much and, like many people, has had no bearing on her choice of career. Jane has worked in local government for most of her adult life. Her first job was supporting people with rent and council tax arrears, and she has had different jobs in local government over the past 24 years. And her role now as Director of People Policy at COSLA covers policy relating to children and young people, health, social care, and working with trade union colleagues to support the workforce. Jane, thanks very much for joining me on the Read All About It podcast. Thanks for having me, Paul. Delighted to be here. Now, I'm going to come across here sounding a bit like an old cheesy 1970s DJ, but a long-time listener, first-time guest. Absolutely. So I first heard the podcast, I think uh, you'd interviewed Danny Garavelli and she had tweeted the link to it. Like loads of book lovers, I just listen to anything and that is about books. I love hearing people talk about books. So I've been listening ever since. Um, so not only have I got loads of good book recommendations, I've been introduced to loads of writers and people that I didn't know about. So it's, it's been great. And when I was just reading your, your wee bio there, and one of the things which I really loved was that, you know, when you were saying about how you'd gone to St Andrews University to study English, just because you love books and it hasn't, you know, it hasn't dictated your, your career choices. And often, quite a few times people have asked me in terms of maybe going on to study journalism at university. I'm not a big fan of journalism degrees, incidentally, but I always say go to university or go to further education, study what you love because you'll enjoy it more, you'll enjoy the experience. But at the end of it, you'll, you'll still have your degree. And then if you don't want to do anything else with it, it will take you on to a different stepping stone. And I'm, I'm presuming, I'm guessing that that's maybe your experience. Yeah, absolutely. So I think when I was at school, I had no idea what I wanted to be. And in fact, I kind of, as you said in the, the introduction, I kind of fell into my job in local government. But I just knew how much I loved books. I loved reading them all the way through my childhood. I was really that bookish kid. That was me. And I loved them in my teenage years. And when I was looking to go to university, I just didn't know or see anything else that really took my fancy. And my dad said to me, just go study English and enjoy every day of it. Because once it's gone, it's gone. And when I look back on those four years, as I say, it's had very little bearing on my job other than maybe the way I write uh, reports and things. But I I remember those four years really fondly because all I did was read books and hang out with my friends. And I feel really sorry for the students at the moment that don't have some of those same experiences because it was a magical time. It really was. I mean, that is brilliant advice from your dad. And I must admit, I'm always envious of anyone who did go to university to study English literature because uh, I, I didn't. But I always, it's one of those things I wish if I could go back and do it again, I would just for the same reasons as you're saying, because basically yeah. you just love books. It's funny because when people talk about winning the lottery, what I say, and I genuinely mean it, is if I won the lottery, I'd go and study again because I just remember those four years so fondly and I learned so much and it, it made such a difference to my life. So. Yeah, I'm a big fan of going and doing what you really love doing. 
Now, in terms of your actual job, I mentioned you're Director of People Policy with COSLA, and I'm guessing that your work and the work of your colleagues has probably never been more important than it has been over the, the past year with the pandemic and the lockdown and all the, the impact that has on all the services that we, we need and we kind of sometimes take for granted. Yeah, absolutely. It's been, as for everyone right across the country, I think it's been a bit of a roller coaster. For, for local government, we, we've always been there to put our arm around people when they just need a wee bit of extra support and a helping hand, as well as providing all the universal services that people know about. And actually in Scotland, we've had over 200,000 people isolating, uh, shielding uh, throughout the course of the year. And we were there along with our partners and the the charities and the voluntary sector to be there for people to keep them safe and to keep them well. We kept schools going, we've provided childcare for all those important workers so they could get to their jobs and the NHS caring for people looking after our communities. So I think it's never been so important and I think I'd like to see some of that recognition more nationally I think sometimes. I know people in communities are talking all the time about how great it was that people helped them out but there was a lot of work behind it and I think we did pretty well as a country. Yeah and I always kind of feel as well that I mean, I know that the symbolism of, you know, when people were standing outside applauding for the NHS and stuff like that, there's a whole raft of people in local authorities who are kind of the unsung heroes. But I also think that rather than just applause, that there should be substantial reward and thanks for that, as in pay rises and an acknowledgement of how important all these people are. Yeah, I mean, we work with the most amazing people in local authorities. And yes, they're doing things like picking up your bins and looking after your streets, but they're educating your children, they're looking after your wee ones, they're going into care for your, your older relatives or those that are vulnerable. We're there to, to support families that are going through really difficult or chaotic times. And it's often the hidden side. I think when people talk about the council, what do they do for me? I can identify someone that's a fairly privileged position because if you're not and you need a wee bit extra support, it's the council that come in to help. And every single person out there, I think we employ just about 250,000 people across the country. Every single those, one of those people absolutely pulled it out of the bag this year. Um, and I know our trade union colleagues will be making sure that they're making a pitch for proper recognition for those people. Now, you obviously, I mentioned that you, you listen to the, the podcast regularly and like a lot of the other guests, when it came for me asking you to pick your choices for the five categories, you found it quite difficult, which to be fair, I think that's, uh, I've always said, it's, I've got the easy part where I just ask the question and then trying to, especially if you love books, trying to pin it down for you know one book per category, which you haven't quite managed to do, but that's fine. I've, there's no rules in this podcast. But if we, if we go back to your favourite book from childhood, um, there was a couple that you've chosen, but the first one is Alice's Adventures in Wonderland by Lewis Carroll. Yeah, so I think when I looked at the questions and I thought back, this is the first book I remember being read to me and that I, I, just, I was just loving it. So my dad was reading it to me. I was a wee girl. I was maybe four or five, I think I can tell because I can picture my bedroom at the time. You know, I just got lost in that world when he was reading it to me. And I remember him putting the light out and saying, right, that's it, we'll do the rest tomorrow. And I remember that's the first time that when I really was downstairs that I went and put the light back on and got the book back up. And it was the old-fashioned pictures that are really famous, the old uh, illustrations. So the copy I've got now still has those illustrations. I just loved it. It was, it was that idea of surrealism almost. When you think about it, a white rabbit runs past looks at his pocket watch and says, I'm going to be late. And this wee girl runs after him um, and falls down the rabbit hole into this fantastic world. And I don't think I'd ever heard a fantastic story like that. And I still think it's one of the most fantastic stories you can read in terms of fantasy. I read it and reread it. I wasn't as fond as Al of Alice Through the Looking Glass, which was the follow-up. But that story of, of this wee girl running after the rabbit, trying to find him, 
eating food that made her grow big and then drinking drinks that made her grow small and then all the characters she met it as I've read it again recently and I, I think what talked to me at the time was Lewis Carroll got it bang on about how people talk to kids people that kids respond to talk to them absolutely on the level like no patronizing and then there's other characters that talk down to Alice and they patronise her. Like it's like the caterpillar saying, who are you? And the, the Duchess being very dismissive of her, the Queen of Hearts, obviously. And you, you learn to hate those characters because as a, wee, as a wee person, that's the way that people talk to you that you don't like. So um, I think it's fantastic. When I was reading it the last time, I'll be doing note to myself that at the very, very end of the book, Alice wakes up and it's been a dream and her sister says, run away, go back home, it's all fine. And her sister sits there and thinks about how sad it is that she'll never go down the rabbit hole because she's not a child anymore. And I didn't realise that till the last time I read it. So if anyone's thinking of going back and reading it, it's actually, you end up feeling really sad at the end about all that lost childhood and all that lost innocence. It's a fantastic book. When we were corresponding before the podcast started, you mentioned your dad was an English teacher at one point and... I take it then that as a result of that, the books were always in the house and he would have been, you know, encouraging you to read, obviously, as soon as you could. There was always loads and loads of books around the house and there wasn't just on bookshelves. You know, they were piled up on tables and they were they were in the corner of rooms and things. So I've grown up with a, just a sense that books are just every, in every room that, that you can be in. So he and my mum always made sure I had books, but they didn't have a, have a lot of money when I was little. So we went to the library a lot as well. Like, I think we went almost every single week. So I knew I had a copy of Alice's Adventures in Wonderland, I can remember that. But a lot of the books that I remember fondly, I used to get them out of the library and get them back again the next week because I loved them so much. And then as I got a wee bit older, what I started to do was start to read my mum and dad's books because they were in the, in the house. So I think if you say to kids, this is part of your life and this is a great part of your life and it's something for you to enjoy and, and you pick up what you enjoy, then the kids just go with it. You know, their minds go with it. And there's things that I love reading now that mum and dad wouldn't be this fond of, but we just, we shared this love of books right from the very start. And I also think as well, and, and other people have touched on this, particularly the, the book in your childhood, that part of the, the love of it comes not just from the story and, and the fact it's a book, that whole memory of being read to. And it was a kind of something that you would do, that you, your mum or dad would sit and read with you, and it was it's just that kind of shared experience. It is, and I, tried to, I did it with both my girls as well, so I've got really fond memories of reading with them. I remember just cuddling into my mum and dad when I was a wee girl and that, that lovely sense of being cuddled and there was nobody else in the room because it was bedtime, it was just you and them and you were getting lost in that book and it's a really lovely, safe memory for kids and I tried to do that with both my kids and as an adult I got lots emotionally out of it as well, sitting cuddling them with no other distractions and getting lost in a book so it's a really special time. And the other book that you mentioned in this category uh, was a book called Little Woman by Louisa May Alcott. Yeah, and I guess the reason that I was finding it so hard to choose between the two is, and most people I think are the same, there's the books that you remember as a really little person, and then there's the books that you find yourself or is given to you and, and as, as a slightly older kid, and I think I was about 10 or 11 when I got a copy of Little Women, that was my mum, she gave me a copy of that, and I just fell in love with these four girls, and I don't have any brothers or sisters, so I loved that real sense of the four girls, the sisters, and how they looked after each other, I love the fact that they fell out and that they weren't angels all the time. And I really loved the main character of Jo. And when I speak to other people who've loved Little Women, I think we all thought we were Jo. We all thought we were that, that girl who was out getting messy, reading books, not particularly feminine, not, didn't, didn't fit in anywhere. But she was the hero. She was the strong one and the brave one and the clever one. So yeah, I really loved it. 
it came out in film, I think, was it last year? Greta Gerwig did a really good version of it with Saoirse Ronan and Emma Watson and Florence Pugh. I took my girls to the cinema to see it and, and the, to see the two of them fall in love with that story um, the way I did. But they did it through a film rather than a book. I think it's, it's a great, great story. And I think it's often overlooked because I think it's called Little Women. So people think it's, it's probably about twee little girls doing doilies and things like that. And it's really not. It's about four really different female characters and they fall out and they bat at each other and they make up stories and they act out and it's just brilliant. And is that a book, I know you read it plenty of times when you were younger, is that a book that you've returned to to see what your reaction would be as an adult? Do you know, I haven't read it for about 10 years or so, so the last time I read it I was an adult but not very recently and I loved it again and I, I think it, it stands the test of time. I'm not so fond of the sequels again there's good wives and little men and, and the stories go on about four girls, their children and, and the adventures they get up. So I think the magic was caught for me in that first book. It was just really great. Now, if I can take you on from childhood and then it's to, to formative years and the book you've chosen, and interestingly, well, the first book that you've chosen in your kind of formative years is Jane Eyre by Charlotte Bronte. But I've noticed the first three books that you've chosen are all written in the 19th century, which again is a testament to the quality that you were reading them in the like, kind of late 20th century and they're having that impact on you. But what specifically about Jane Eyre has stood the test of time for you? Yes, I think the question was about um, your formative years, and that could be your teenage years or or years years at university. And this book, to me, just sums up those four years that I was talking about earlier at university about reading books. I studied this in my second year, and I remember, you know, I hadn't actually started the book yet when I went into the lecture and sat down with everybody else. And I didn't, in my head, I wasn't really looking forward to this. I thought I knew what Junior was all about. I thought it was yet another governess who, you know, comes through. And the lecturer walked in and he started saying, well, guys, I thought I was going to read Junior for the last time so I could, I could take you through this. But it breaks my heart to think of ever reading this for the last time. And he was so personal about it and he was so enthusiastic about it. And I remember just sitting listening to a guy who loved this book so much. And I went back to my, my student halls and I just remember sitting down this book and I spent the whole day reading it. I didn't stop. Um, I read the whole thing from start to finish and realised exactly what he was talking about, that it's not about this twee governess. Um, it's about a little girl who's born in difficult circumstances. She's really poor. She's not well treated by her, her sort of aunt and her foster family. She's then sent to a really difficult school and that was all happening at the time. Girls who didn't have a lot of income, they were sent to schools to, to become governesses or, or jobs like that. But they were poor and they were cold and a lot of them died of illnesses. And she goes through all that and it's really traumatic. And the whole big thing about Jane Eyre, people remember, is the relationship with Mr. Rochester. And I think what I took from the book because of how it was taught to me was to see that actually Jane Eyre is always in charge of her own life, even when she doesn't think she is. And is it was this Charlotte Bronte, you know, crying out for that same control in her own life. And actually the happy ending only comes when Jane Eyre has got her own income. She's a woman of her own means. And she goes back to Rochester, who's, who's been brought down uh, to a fairly low level. Now that we're equal, she says, we can be married. So it's, it's all done in her terms. And so I picked this book because I love the character and I'd recommend anyone to read it who hasn't read it, who's maybe thought it's just another Victorian novelist but a governess because it's really not and because I remember just the difference that, that a teacher can make because a lot of people I think when they talk to me about books they say oh I love books but I hate being taught about it at school and I tell them this story about how I was kind of dismissing this book until this guy walked into the lecture hall and brought it to life 
and then I went to a few tutorials with him and, and he got me into loads of other different Victorian books as well. So um, it's that enthusiasm again, isn't it? It's just when someone brings their own love to it, you go, oh, I really need to get into that. And I've read that more than 20 or 30 times in my life. I think it's a very tattered copy now. <laughs> I mean, I think you go to, I mean, you definitely go to the heart of the key to teaching English literature. And if any of us are lucky that either it's at school or university, there is a teacher that you remember that kind of, really engaged you but also I've found even just doing these podcasts that the because you're asking people for books that have a particular meaning for them at a particular stage of their life so there's just a natural passion and an affection for the books and the number of books I've ended up reading on the back of just being totally engaged with the way somebody's speaking and I think that you're absolutely right that's so important one thing I was going to ask you you'd mentioned you were talking earlier on about having gone to see Little Women with your daughters who come to the, the story through the film and you you know you obviously read to them when they're grown up how have they taken on that, your love of literature or, or books into their own lives? Yeah, it's interesting. I've heard, I've heard you talk about your kids. I've heard other, other people talk about their kids. And I think that there's something in common there. So they were both huge readers right up to about the age of 10 or 11, I think. So if you like all the way through primary school, both girls were avid readers. And both, absolutely, it was the Harry Potter books that got them. You should put a statue up to J.K. Rowling, I think, just for what she's done for getting kids into books because they and all their friends loved it and they weren't even the generation that it was written for, if you like. Um, so Neve's 18 now and Darcy's 12. So the book's been around for quite a while, but they're both big Harry Potter fans. From there, they went into, they both went into sort of the dystopian teenage books, so like the Hunger Games and the Divergence series. And then Neve she's my older daughter she she loved books and she loved certain English teachers as well all the way through school so just that thing you're saying about an English teacher making a difference and at the point I think if we're doing our hires she was all for doing English at uni and then she got a different teacher who she didn't get on with quite so well and that kind of went so she's now doing politics and history but what she says to me now is she's I really want to read books because I'm studying so much the last thing I want to do is pick up a book so she's doing it through good TV adaptations or films or, you know, they listen to audiobooks more, etc. So, And I'm absolutely fine with that. And Darcy, who's my youngest, she's 12, she's still reading. But what I've seen is the impact of the social media. So she used to pick up a book voluntarily. Now she'll pick up a phone, but she'll still go and read just before she goes to bed at night. So I like to think that they'll always have a love of books in their life, but there's something about this generation, how they get information and use information and, and reach out to other people online means that maybe they're not just as attached to the physical book as we were. Because I must admit, my so my youngest son, he's 26 now. He's obviously the one that I've outed as being not being the reader on many occasions, but I'm glad that I've missed that, you know, that whole explosion of social media and everything being on the phone and, and not really knowing, you know, having to watch what they're, they're looking at, etc. I'm glad mine kind of just missed that. They just were on the cusp of that and they just got a wee bit older, so... I think that's just a, a different challenge as a, as a parent, I suppose. It is, and it's, I'm absolutely open to... So a challenge I got from my kids when I spoke to them about it was, but mum, it didn't happen when you were our age. And they're absolutely right. When I was 12 to maybe the age of 16, where your friends are just everything and so important to you, maybe if I could have had them, my friends, on a device right next to me all the time, maybe that would have been more distracting. I'm, I'm back in the day where you had to ask your mum if you could use the phone and then phone your pal for half an hour. So, so they're absolutely right. Maybe if we'd had this technology, then we wouldn't have been as attached to book. I don't. I like to think not, but I'm open to the possibility. Again, I mentioned earlier on that uh, trying to 
boil it down to one choice in each category was tough. So the other book that you chose in the formative years, which uh, it takes you right up to the, the 20th century, and that uh, was Trainspotting by Irvin Welsh. Yeah, and it's, it's so different, isn't it, from anything I've chosen before? And I thought really hard about this. And I guess it was, so I think the book's really good. It's really funny. It's depicting some awful characters getting up to awful things, as we know, because um, if you've not read the book, and the film's really well known as well. But the, this had a real impact on me because I read it at uni at the same time. So I was at St Andrews Uni and I was, you know, walking through beautiful town of St Andrews, books in hand, etc. But I always felt a wee bit left out. And I think it was that feeling that some people have not everyone has it, that if you come from, you know, a fairly normal working class background, when you're surrounded by people who maybe have had more at an early stage in their life and know how to speak with confidence, you feel like you're not quite good enough. And I was just, I was reading all these books and I was was getting my education, having a fantastic time. And this book, everyone started reading it. It was a year after I went to uni. And I just remember picking it up and going, oh my God, these people speak the way people speak where I come from. And it was the first time I'd seen it in print. And I now know that it had been happening in literature for years. But this was the first time I picked up a book where I saw it. So at the very same time I was reading Jane Eyre for the first time, the same year I read Trainspotting. And I loved that it was written in the vernacular, that he writes it the way we say it. And I'd recommend it to anyone who thinks they know the story from the film. Because the female characters in the book are so much better. Irvin Welsh, he brings them to life. They're funny. They mock the male characters. They've got, you know, talk about agency. They've got an agency all of their own. And I think that didn't come across particularly well in the film. So I've got really fond memories of that book. When you had selected Trainspotting, and that was the line that jumped out to me, what you just said about, you know, the, the female characters in the novel. Because I, I read the novel at the time. But then I think you, the adaptation, the film adaptations, I think they seep into your consciousness. So you're very much aware of the four main male characters but as soon as I, when I read that, I thought, I'm going to have to read that book again, just to kind of reacquaint myself and maybe get a more rounded view of the novel rather than just relying on the what is an excellent film adaptation of parts of it, I suppose. It's an absolutely brilliant film adaptation. And I even liked the, the follow-up that they did um, just recently as well. But I guess you go back and the female characters are not just somebody's girlfriend. They're so funny. And he writes the female characters really well. And I don't think he often gets a lot of credit for that, Irvin Welsh. So I would definitely recommend people go back and read it if they haven't read it before. When I was think- listening to your recent podcast, I know that now how many people wrote in the Scots vernacular. This was the first one. But I guess I still respond really positively when I pick up a book that's written like that. So just recently, Shuggy Bain did the same thing. You know, you, you picked it up and you're I'm right in there again. So it's a really, it's a really interesting line, if you like, all the way back to when the people first started writing in Scots about the stories we choose to tell in Scots. It's interesting, you know, you mentioned about, you know, St Andrews at university would be, they, they see themselves in a par with like Oxford and Cambridge in, in terms of how they view themselves and the kind of people they want to attract. So did that take a while to adjust to that then you kind of mentioned or, or be able to just immerse yourself in the actual study? I think the actual study was fine. And I, just talking as we have been about people that make a difference. I got over that sort of chip on my shoulder off, I don't belong here, because a lecturer stopped me, or it was a tutor actually, stopped me when I was leaving the room one day when everyone else had left. And he said to me, why don't you speak up in the tutorial? And he was a Scottish guy. He said, is it because you think your voice isn't as valuable as their voice? And it was the first time someone had sort of put that right in my face. I remember being a bit taken aback and nervous. But he didn't let me answer. He just said, your voice is absolutely as important as their voice. Because I can see it in your writing. You need to speak up more. 
and I did. So over the course of the years, the four years I was there, I definitely went from feeling a bit nervous, like I didn't belong to my last year, where I absolutely just spoke up and was a wee bit more strident and fully participated. The whole social bit was fine, but it's definitely that. And I think loads of people talk about that feeling of, am I quite good enough here? You see it in other, in, I read books by people who've clearly had that experience and they describe it. Um, you know, Normal People by Sally Rooney was really good about that, about the feeling of inadequacy. But again, that role of the, the teacher or the lecturer just trying to help somebody out made a big difference. Because that's more than just knowing your subject and knowing how to impart that knowledge. It's kind of getting a sense of who it is you're teaching and what it is that's going to bring that out. I mean, that's really perceptive. I wrote him a wee note when I graduated um, saying, I don't need to remember saying this to me, but um, it made a big impact. I don't think I thanked you at the time. So I hope he got that note. <laughs> I left it in his wee cubby hole and ran away, as you do when you're 22 and you don't want to say it. <laughs> but yeah, I remember that really fondly as well, because that's helped me for the rest of my life in terms of speaking up and having some confidence in myself. Well, you're listening to the Read All About It podcast with my guest today is Jane O'Donnell. Jane, we are on to the third book choice in the podcast, and that is a book slash books that you would recommend to anyone. And uh, the first one, which is the main one, again, you, you said you recommend this uh, all the time to people, is a book called Life After Life by Kate Atkinson. Yeah, and I do. I've given this book away so many times to people. I, I buy it for people and actually put it in their hand. So I'd read... Kate Atkinson's first book, Behind the Scenes at Museum, and I thought it was pretty good. And I didn't read anything else of hers until um, Life After Life came out, and it came out in 2013, I think. And I went into a bookshop to get it. I think I'd read a review, and oh, that sounds good. And it's just the most astonishing book. So it starts with a woman walking into a cafe in 1930 Berlin and shooting Hitler in the head. So you, you start by going, well, that didn't happen. So this is, this is definitely fiction. And then the next chapter is a woman's given birth to a baby and the baby's cords wrapped around its neck and the doctor can't get to them in time because of the snow so the baby dies and then the next chapter is the same woman's given birth to the same baby but the baby just hangs back a bit (laughs) that's how it's described the doctor makes it in time so this time the doctor saves the baby's life and what you realize is that this character the main character Ursula has this ability to reincarnate every time something goes wrong and you either get this or you don't because it's a huge, it's awfully fictional. It's a huge imaginative leap to make that you can do that. So it, it goes on, she, you know, she falls in the sea as a toddler and drowns. So the next chapter is she's lived her life. She gets to the sea and something in her head tells her not to go in there. So she doesn't drown in the sea that time. And so the, the first, the early parts of her year, she's grown up, I think, just leading up to the First World War as a child. And, and she's got a, quite a nice background and you know I think they're quite well off they've got servants and things like that Um, and every point of danger she learns from and she learns her life and she has this ability to reincarnate and when she comes back in to know something about not making that choice the moment you get into it it's just absolutely incredible and what I love about it is not just the story of this character who has this amazing ability it's the historical accuracy. So she brought so much of, I mean, obviously that's way before my lifetime. And it just, it just came into focus and it, it just came, it all came to life. And when I was, I was looking through it just last week when I was thinking about coming to speak to you today and what I remember saying to people at the time and, and what I'm reflecting on now is there's a whole 
part of the book, which is about the Spanish flu pandemic. I remember at the time reading it and I was getting really fed up because Ursula kept dying of the flu, no matter what she did. She kept dying. So the servant that, that was looking after her, she and her boyfriend went to like a, a victory day celebration at the end of the First World War and they got it and passed it to Ursula. So she died. So she stops that servant going out to that particular uh, event the next life round, but she still gets it and she dies. And I think there's four or five times that Ursula comes back to that point and she keeps getting the Spanish flu and dying. I remember reading at the time going, oh, it couldn't have been that difficult to avoid the Spanish flu. And right now, sitting in this pandemic, you go, wow, because Kayaxon clearly did her research really well and it was just as bad as COVID is now, as difficult to avoid. So it's, it's really, really well-researched and well-written, but you just fall in love with this character and you're just gunning for her all the time. And it's not even a particularly happy book. So she makes some choices which are wrong and she finds herself in, in really horrible situations. So she's attacked. She has to have a backstreet abortion. She ends up being battered to death by, by a husband. And every time around she comes back and there's this thing in the back of her head going, I'm not going to talk to that guy this time. I'm not going to go down that road this time. And what I say to people is, you know, that feeling in your head where you think, I just don't think I want to do that. That must have been what gave Kate Atkinson the idea. Where did that? Because we've all got it, that sense of, no, I'm just not walking down that street this time or I'm, I'm just not going in the car today. So I, I recommend it to everybody. And so far, only one person has said they didn't like it. So I think that's a pretty good issue so far. And did you judge them harshly? No, but it, it's a, a really good friend of mine. And I've known him since university. And he loves all Kate Atkinson's other books. So it's really odd that the one that I love the most is the one that he, I think he can't get over the, the, the thing where she can reincarnate. So you, you either have to go with it or you don't to get this book, I think. I suppose it's also that idea of, which I think we all do, especially as you get older, you know that way everybody looks back at episodes and aspects and moments in their life. And it might just be a job you took or turned down, a relationship. It could be anything. And at least a very curiosity of, not if that could happen again, but if I could do that again, would I do you know differently? And that in itself, you know, either you learn from your mistakes or do you make them all over again? I always think that's fascinating in itself. And and, and the older you get, I'm I'm 46 now. I can there's so many points in my life. I think, what if I hadn't met that person? What if I hadn't done that thing? I think you philosophically come to a stage of well, I wouldn't be sitting here in this position now if I hadn't made all those choices. But yeah, maybe there's a hundred other genes or a hundred other Pauls out there living a different life and. I just, I think that book, if you love those sort of ideas, she writes it so well. And I say the research is astonishing. There was stuff I didn't know about the fall of Berlin after the Second World War and how difficult it was for the people that were left there and some of the things they went through. And, and I learned that from the book. So there's a lot, there's really a lot in there. And I, I would stick it in your hand right now if we're in the same room. And also, I think that, you know, that point you just made there, which I always think is fascinating, something sometimes instinctively makes you decide not to do something. As you say, maybe it's deciding you don't want to go down that road or take the car or do, you know, you don't know why. And then maybe nothing happens, but you, it's just there's something, whether that's, I'm not sure if that's come back to living previous lives, but that again, as you say, is for a novelist, even just that wee grain of an idea is enough to obviously have to have got her off in this you know, work of great imagination. It's, it's fantastic. And I'd, it's a sort of book you definitely just get lost in. So if you're looking for a book to get lost in, you do. You, if you give yourself up to it, you can find yourself right back. It goes from about 1910 all the way up to about 1970, I think. And it's, it's fantastic. A really great book. Now, I mentioned that you were going to recommend books as opposed to book. 
The other one, <laughs> the, one of the other ones she chose was a book called The Power by Naomi Alderman. The reason I've chosen this is I, I do recommend it to lots of people, but I recommend it along with The Handmaid's Tale. And obviously, because I've been listening to your podcast, um, I know a lot of people have said The Handmaid's Tale. So, so we'll, we'll all agree and pin that to all that. That's one thing you should definitely read. I think you need to read this alongside it or right after it. So I've looked into it since I read the book and apparently Margaret Atwood and Naomi Alderman have a sort of mentor relationship. Um, so they're, they're really quite close and they sh- Naomi Alderman was sharing drafts with Margaret Atwood. But the idea of the power is that in current times, one day teenage girls wake up and they can give electric shocks through their hands. And it comes from a made up part of the human body called the skin, which is up at your neck. And it kind of comes out a bit like Spider-Man, it comes out of their hands. They all realise it at the same time, but the book starts with a girl called Roxy, I think. And she's the daughter of a gang leader. And this rival gang come in and they kill her mother in front of her. And she's so scared and so angry that it just shoots out of her and she kills these men with this electric bolt. And it happens all around the world. So you've got that fantastic sci-fi story of what would happen if one half of the population could physically kill the other half very easily. But because it's the women who have the, the power, everything starts to turn its head really quickly. And so all of a sudden, teenage boys are told to come straight home after school because they're not safe to be out on their own. And um, relationships, you know, guys are told to stay at home and, and keep it nice and, and not, to, not to act a certain way to annoy the women because they'd be unfortunately forced to give them an ele- a bolt of electricity. The wryness and the satire of it is just superb. And she doesn't flinch. So it goes all the way up to women acting with sexual violence towards men. And it's pretty gruesome. And she just shows that no matter what the gender is, to have the power over another gender leads to some really, really bad, dreadful behaviour. It's the wee stuff as well. It's like this, it's told as if from the past. So there's like a male academic and a female academic talking about it and the male academic in the future is very sort of subservient and and do you think this and sorry to ask that and the female academics dismissing them and being patronizing and um you know as you read it you're just you're laughing as well as getting angry you're going yes this is exactly how it feels so the women i've given it to love it and the men i've given it to have a really strong reaction they, they tend to get it but they tend to say it was it, it really frightened me in which case i think it worked yeah, because I was just going to say, actually, it's probably a book that seems to me that it's more important than men read. Yeah, I guess so. the whole thing about, you know, don't teach your daughters to act a certain way, teach your sons to, to respect them. I think that absolutely comes through in it. It's so nuanced and so complex, I'm probably not doing it justice, but, you know, it's all powers. So you have a religion that builds up around it, where women are sort of the, the maternal figure is, is the ultimate and then you have political power. So this politician, this female politician rises up the ranks, pushing all our male competitors aside. There's the, the military all become women using their electric power. Um, and you have you know, refugee camps of men hiding from women. And there's one male character who I think is a, he's a journalist and he's supposed to be quite a good looking guy. So he's patronised and he's sexually assaulted, trying to do his job and he's trying to sh- shine a light on, on what's happening. So it's so pertinent to today and as I say it's it's funny in bits but it's so black and afterwards you read it you really put it down and go oh that 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 was something else that book that wasn't just that's not just a good yarn that is something else it's a it's a masterpiece in my view you gave me three books to recommend um, I'm sure you could probably give me more, lots more and um, the other one was <laughs> The God of Small Things by Arundhati Roy what I did 
I think it was last year, I did, I did this thing where I'm trying not to read the same things over and over again. So last year I decided to reread things I'd read before that I thought were really good. And this made the cut. So I read this when it came out and Arundhati Roy, this was the only book she wrote for 20 years. She's a big political activist in India, but this is the only novel she wrote and it won the Booker Prize back then. And it's about twins, a boy and a girl, and they're growing up um, in Kerala in India. And it's about, you know, the growth of Marxism and communism and how that's put down by people in power. It's about how the women in Kerala are treated by the men. It's about religion. It's about all the big issues, but actually she tells it in the smallest story. And ultimately she brings in this idea about the caste system in India, which I didn't know about. The idea that there's an untouchable set of people in India. And these twins come into contact with this man who's from the untouchable uh, set of people, according to others. But he is the person with the most love and and the most grace and um, treats them with respect and their mother falls in love with them. And there's an absolute tragedy surrounding this man and the way he's treated because he is uh, of the the Dalit uh, set of people, according to everyone else. It's such a complicated story, but... It's about the small things are the ones that make the impact. So the twins are absolutely traumatised by this whole period of their life and they come back as adults to the area and they sort of relive it in their mind. And yeah, I'd recommend it to anyone. It's, it's, it's the one book from that rereading that I, I, after 20 years, I said, yes, that's just as good as I remember it. And I say she didn't write another book for 20 years, so she also thought it's pretty good too. Obviously, you, you listen to the podcast, you know that I like a seamless link on this podcast and... Uh, what you just said there takes me nicely onto the book that you couldn't uh, be paid to read again. And it's a book called The Odd Woman by George Gissing. And I think when you, you explained the reason why is that was a book that you initially had liked and then went to reread it and had a completely different reaction to it. Yeah, and it's linked to that year that I read Jane Eyre. So the same lecturer had said to me, you should read George Gissing. He's really good. And of course, I hadn't heard of George Gissing. I think he wrote he wrote New Grub Street, which is a quite a, a more well-known Victorian novel, and he wrote this. And I remember loving this at the time. It's a story, so a male writer at the time identified that after the, the most recent war, there was a whole generation of women who couldn't get married. So they were called the odd women, and they were dying in poverty and things. And that's what the story's about. So the idea behind it's still really pertinent and important. But at the time, I just remember thinking, this is just the best written novel I've ever read. And I was really enthusiastic about it. And I told everyone about it and they had to read it. And all the way up to just last year, I'd say, well, the one book I bet you've never heard of, you have to read. I absolutely mistaken my reputation on it. And then I had this year of rereading last year and I looked forward to this and I picked it up. And after maybe a few chapters, I realised that I really, really didn't like this book anymore. <laughs> it's still the same story, but... The writing just seemed really dull and the characters seemed, you know, very empty to me. And I was absolutely devastated. I thought I've spent 20 years telling people to read this book and and they probably cursed me for it because it's really not that good. That's what I was wondering of all these people who thought, well, well, Jane said it's good, I should read it. And then afterwards thinking, what else are you talking about? I know. So I guess I imagine it's the difference in, it's also the difference in me. So the first time I read it, I was 20. The second time I read it, I was 45. I've obviously... I've also grown up a bit since then. So I say it's, he's known as a, as a good writer, but I think maybe just I had really pitched this this book as so high in my in my mind that, that it really fell down flat. So I would I wouldn't ever read it again. Because I'm always curious. Again, it's a question I often ask people who are on the podcast of what kind of reader you are. It always coincides with this category. I think where 
if you're not enjoying a book, do are you one of those people who do persevere until you finish it, or if you're not enjoying it at all, you just put it down and pick up something that you're more likely to enjoy? That's definitely changed. I think when I was younger, I definitely had think I must finish the book. And I think it's only changed in the last four or five years. Maybe it's, I don't you hit your 40s and just suddenly don't have time for bad books anymore. So in the last four or five years, I have started to just put it down if I'm not enjoying it. Sometimes I go back and try again if someone has really recommended it to me. I think, well, maybe just give another chance. But I'm, I'm far more likely now to put a book down than I was before. Because I, I would always find this the most difficult category for that reason, because I've, I've never really been one to, if I'm not enjoying a book, I, I don't really finish it. But I often go back, I usually give a book two or three times. So sometimes, you know, that way, sometimes it may be the mood you're in, or it's just not the right book for you at the right time. So I'll always go back two or three times. But if I still end up struggling, then I think, well, it's not for me. So as a result, I, I don't really have as much of an adverse reaction for that reason, because I've maybe not persevered with them and got to the end and thought, I hated that. I've kind of got a rule that if I'm starting to not enjoy a book, I say I'm going to give it 50 pages from the point that I think I'm not enjoying it. And if the writer hasn't turned me around in 50 pages, then it goes down. It's always about the 100-page mark. And partly the right. reason for that is uh, The Name of the Rose by Umberto Eco is one of my favourite books. It's one of those a few books I've reread a few times. But it is the sort of book where I think you do have to stick with it for about 100 pages. It's fine. The first 100 pages are OK. They're good. And then it's almost like you turn the page and then it just, that's you. You've just, I don't know if you've just had to get that foundation and then after that. So I've kind of... You think, right, okay, I'll, I'll stick with it round about to that point. And then after that, if it's not happening, then it's back on the shelf. So maybe I need to up it from 50 to 100. <laughs> <laughs> but no, it's, it's, a, it's a personal thing. So <laughs> again, that, that was another novel from the, the late 19th century. But in terms of the last question, the, the last book, either the last book you read or the book you're currently reading, that's a much more contemporary choice. And it's a book by Candice Callie Williams called Queenie. When, when we were allowed to travel briefly, I went to London uh, with my partner and my daughters and I went to all the big bookshops in London and I picked up Queenie and I had a look at the back and thought, no, I really fancy that, so I'm going to give it a shot. I really enjoyed it. I've never read it. I think this is the first book she's written. I haven't read anything else by her. So Queenie is um, a, a young black woman uh, living in London. Uh, she had some trauma in her past and she has a series of really difficult and uncomfortable relationships with white men. And it's also about her come to terms with things that she likes and doesn't like about herself. So it sounds really quite serious and dark, but it's so funny. So the two or three times I was reading this book and the family would look up because I'd be like tears rolling down my face laughing. She's so well observed. And obviously I don't come from a Nigerian background or anything like that. that so it's, she's such a good writer because she pulled me right in and I could recognise those characters. I could recognise you know, the, the strong matriarchal mother and, and grandmother characters and the impact they were having. And then she also did, so Queenie has a bit of a period of, of uh, mental illness throughout the book, which is relating to some of her stuff in her past. And that's done so sensitively and also so positively. So she goes through a period of therapy and help and she comes out and she's much, much better as a result, which I think is really important as well, because sometimes depictions of mental health in books are, are quite negative and, and elongated and unhopeful. So this book was just full of laughter and hope and really well observed. If she writes anything else, I'll, I'll go out and get it because I enjoyed this one so much. So I was actually having a conversation uh, with a friend of mine recently and we were talking about, he just happened to mention that a book he was reading, he was laughing out loud, which he said, and I'm probably the same as well, it's not something that often happens in books because it's a, it's a really difficult skill 
to be funny on the page because you obviously you don't know the audience and you you have no way of being able to dictate how they react. So for for you to have that reaction is testament, I presume, to her skill as a writer. Absolutely, yeah, and I think I think she's a, a journalist by trade as well. But the character Queenie is really compelling. She she brings you into her life, and then she's got these friends, and you know, like all friendships, some things go well, some things don't. The way they talk to each other, it just all it was so real to me. And I say two or three times laugh out loud and at one point there was there was uh, my eyes were watering it was really really good so definitely recommend that you mentioned and you've mentioned a couple of times in the podcast but you'd also said to me when we were corresponding beforehand that every year as part of your reading plan as it were over the course of the year you like to have a a theme which I think is a great idea I I really like that idea of whatever your theme is how did that come about so I only started it just recently I was speaking to, to somebody that I go to meetings with from, from another organisation. I know they're readers as well. So we've been talking on off for years about the books we like. And she said that she does this. And she said, I do it because otherwise I just read the same things over and over again. You know, it's that thing where you go, oh yeah, nod, nod. And then and walk away and think, no, that's right. I, I read the same things over and over again. So I've got everything that Ali Smith ever wrote. And I've got everything that, you know, David Mitchell ever wrote. But I'm not reading different things. So I'm going to do something different every year. So... I try and do every second or third book I read is something in a theme. So the first time I did it, it was books that other people had recommended to me. And then it was books that I thought I loved, which was, as I said, had mixed results. And this year it was crime fiction. And it was crime fiction this year just because my mum and dad are big crime fiction fans and they're always saying, read this. And I've always been like, no, no, it's not for me. And actually, this year has just shown what a ridiculous position that was because I have loved reading crime fiction this year. And I read everything from Raymond Chandler and Agatha Christie and, and Sherlock Holmes all the way through to really modern stuff, through Scottish noir to Dennis Lehane, everything. And I've loved it, really loved it. So this year has worked really well in terms of I'll, I will definitely seek out those writers again going forward. I just don't know what my theme for next year is. It's a really good idea, actually. It's just for that reason that you, you know, as I say, I was curious to find out why. But again, I'm sure lots of people, when they're listening, they'll be thinking the same, you know, because there are certain genres and certain types of writers and certain types of books that everybody you you enjoy and you know you'll always enjoy. But that kind of idea of taking you out of your comfort zone, I I really like that idea. And it kind of challenges yourself in the loveliest way, because if you're a reader, then you just want to read books. So to read something really different, I think... I've got ideas in my head. So I'd read American Dirt, which I think you guys have talked about in the podcast before. And I read the book and then I read all the the commentary and the controversy. And I thought, I'm going to read um, Latin American writers because I don't know that story from from their perspective. So I should read that. So that's an idea. My partner's been reading Stephen King nonstop. And I've been thinking, I've never read a horror book in my life apart from like the classics like Dracula, etc. Maybe I should read horror books. So I end up with like loads of ideas at the end of every year and I've not yet decided what one it's going to be. Maybe it'll be all your recommendations. Well, that will certainly, certainly kept me in, uh, in lots of reading. Do you know what the next book is you're going to be reading or is it again, is it just once you get to the end of a book? It just depends how you feel because I'm guessing that there must be a whole pile of books around the house that are just waiting for you to read. Yes, I've got, um, I've got a wee box. It's like a wee card, well, it's not a wee card, it's a big cardboard box and I stick books in there and so it's, it's always got some in there it's not too bad at the moment because i've been reading like a like a steam train throughout a pandemic so i've not got too many waiting to be read but i've been watching his dark materials on bbc one the adaptation with my youngest daughter so i'm going back to reread those because i've read them all and i've read the prequels that philip pullman has has published recently and i thought i'm just going to get lost in that world 
So I'll do that probably up to the end of the year. And then I've always got a list on my phone of books that either I've heard on the podcast or I've read a review which sounded good or someone's told me to pick up. So I'm in bookshops almost every month just buying through my list. It never it never goes down, but it's great. It never ends. And interesting, just a thing you just mentioned there, and over the course of the, the past few months, people that I've, I've interviewed for the podcast, and even just friends I've spoke to, in terms of readers, it's, it seems to have been split into two camps over the, the lockdown. Either people, you know, you mentioned there, you've been you know, reading extensively during lockdown. Other people, for whatever reason, have found it more difficult to get back into books. And it's maybe taken them a while to kind of re-engage with the, the kind of reality of what's going on in the real world, but then being able to immerse themselves primarily in fiction. Just because of the role books I've always had in my life, it's always been a source of comfort to me. I can only think a couple of times in my life, maybe when something really difficult had happened, that I didn't have the mental energy for a book. For me, that's how I relax. So I feel like shutting down society and there being so many other concerns around all the people we care about in our communities, the way I could turn off and relax was through books. So I, I've probably read this more this year than I have for the last couple of years. And, and we've heard just a, a small selection of your, of your recommendations. And I'm sure if I asked you tomorrow, you would come up with a whole raft of different ones as well. I had at least 10 books for the formative years and the books you recommend to other people. So I did pretty well getting them down to two or three. <laughs> well, I sort of half apologise for putting you through that agony. Do you know, I loved it. And I loved just thinking about what I would choose and why. Because often when you're chatting about books to folk, you're just doing it off the cuff and it's, it's things you love or you're responding to, to what other people say. This was an opportunity for, for me to really think about it. So it was really good. I really enjoyed it. Well, it's been really good fun talking to you on the podcast. And I'm just wondering that when you are out for a run, uh, when the episode comes out, if you'll just tune into yourself. And that might be a strange experience for you. I think I'll probably, I think I'll listen to that one when I'm sitting down, probably hiding, going, oh no, why did I say that? But um, <laughs> I've been really enjoying listening to your 12 uh, bookmas ideas and re-listening to some of the stuff um, from, from earlier on in the year. So uh, yeah, keep it up, Paul. Thanks for listening to the Read All About It podcast and I'd love to hear what you've thought about it. You can get in touch via Twitter at readallabout20, on Instagram at readallaboutitpodcast, or you can send an email to readallaboutit at paulcuddehy.com. If you've enjoyed the podcast, subscribe, leave a review and spread the word. If you haven't enjoyed it, say nothing to anybody. But I do hope you can join me, Paul Cuddehy, next time on the Read All About It podcast. And in the meantime, keep reading. Keep reading.